this is the tone of Dennis Wilson's voice. My name is Dennis Wilson. I live at 3701 West. People told me later Brian had a really good day that day. Um, he was he was in tears a lot during the ceremony. His wife Melinda was. It was a hot, sunny day. I think it was in the spring or early summer or something like that. It was jammed. There were all kinds of people there. The, the, the big plaque or statue or whatever was there, and it was sort of the familiar picture of them all lined up in their Pendleton shirts wearing, you know, carrying that surfboard. Only now there's six of them because they put um, Al Jardine. I, can't, I think Jardine was the one who wasn't on the cover of that album. So already you're looking at it and you think, like, well, that's a little weird. Like, it's the image, but it's distorted. And then plus also we're at the site of the house, and we're all looking toward this freeway. <laughs> you know, there's like cars roaring by and everything. This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. Just listen to that. It's unearthly. You hear music like that and you think, that kind of inventiveness, that kind of creativity, where does it come from? Well, one possible answer is, it comes from here, 3701 West 119th Street in Hawthorne, a bedroom community in the South Bay of Los Angeles, just south of the airport. This was the boyhood home of the Wilson family, Murray, Audrey, and their boys, Brian, Dennis, and Carl. The boys' cousin, Mike Love, lived nearby. Their friend, Al Jardine, too. The five of them came together as the Beach Boys at this address, even recorded their first tracks here over a long weekend in 1961. But there's nothing here anymore. Well, not nothing. There's a monument made of pink brick and concrete and bronze. It's about 15 feet long, seven feet high, and it backs right up into an embankment for the 105 freeway. The house is long gone. I'm taking some pictures when I hear a voice behind me. It's Victor, who lives right across the street from the monument. He asks me if I'd like a picture of myself in front of the slab. I ask him what he knows about the Beach Boys music. For its time, I think it was it was great for that, that time. And you listen, it's, it's feel-good music, really ha- happy music. You ask people about the Beach Boys music, and that's what they tend to say, right? It's happy music, feel-good music. And some of it is. But that isn't the whole story. Not of the music, and not of the house that spawned it. Listen to the Beach Boys' best work a little harder, a little closer, and hear the sound of a great ambivalence. The music teeters between exaltation and something darker. The house held both light and shadow. And the two-year campaign to memorialize it taught one Beach Boys fan some hard lessons about the limits of devotion, limits that were every bit as present as gladness on that day in 2005 when a crowd gathered to focus its gaze on a house that wasn't there. On a sort of metaphorical level, it made a lot of sense. 
and uh, and so in a weird way it was sort of poetic um, but in another way it was just kind of strange it was in a weird way very expressive of the sad wonderful tragic love of the beach you know the Wilson family and the beach boys and the sad and beautiful and tragic love of of America for the beach boys that's Peter Ames Carlin he's the author of Catch a Wave the rise fall and redemption of the beach boys Brian Wilson more from him in a minute for now let's go back 2 years before the dedication to 2003 that's where the story starts my name is Harry Jarnigan i currently live in auburn washington which is just south of Seattle. Um, I'm a uh, construction program manager by profession and was so at the time of the landmark about 10 years ago. Jarnigan was 49 in 2003, generationally appropriate to be a Beach Boys fan, and he was, sort of, the way a lot of people are. Not hardcore by any means. One night his wife called him into the living room to watch a TV documentary about Brian Wilson. What he now calls the human drama of the story hooked him. So he started reading up on Brian, the family, the band. Shortly after, his oldest son, who was then a college student at Cal State Northridge, was having some car trouble, and Jarnigan drove down to help him out with it. On a whim, he and his son took a drive to go see the site. He knew from his reading that the house had been torn down in the mid-80s, to clear land for the 105 freeway, so he wasn't expecting to see much there. But he really wasn't expecting to see nothing there. It was kind of a a middle-class neighborhood. It it was kind of, um, you could tell it's seen better days, but uh, there was nothing there. All there was was like a a T-intersection, and there was a street sign that said, you know, turn left or right, like one of those buy arrow signs. Peter Carlin again. Well, the house was just this ordinary kind of like, I don't think particularly well-made, sort of modern, post-war, baby boom house, you know? I mean, Hawthorne is a very, at that point, a very working class, blue-collar suburb type place. And so people were, they were kind of living the sort of uh, working class version of the American dream. You know, you had a lawn, you had a house, you had a picket fence. Um, but you also were quite a, a ways away from the action and the glorious parts of L.A. That had been the 60s. This was the early 2000s. The neighborhood had changed, and the house was gone. Jarnigan went home, didn't think much more about it, but the image of that desolate T intersection stuck with him, and a few months later, sitting on his porch, looking at the stars, for some reason he can't now account for, he had his light bulb moment. A marker. A monument. He didn't know the first thing about what would be involved, but he's a quick study, and as for the construction, he manages big building projects for a living. So the idea didn't faze him, and he wasn't starry-eyed about what had happened at the 119th Street address. Having read all the material that I read, I knew that things got really contentious in that house from time to time. Well, that's one way of putting it. Well, the room in the house where the boys stayed, you know, slept, um, was like, as you know, the safe place because I think they, you know, you could shut the door and Murray wouldn't come in by and large unless he came in to 
kick someone's ass, which was common, I think. Murray and the boys. Murray and Brian. It's way too easy to analogize them to Mozart and Salieri, but it's also hard not to because it's really sort of perfect. Murray, the scrapping, low-level songwriter who'd worked so hard and so long to make it in the music business. And then his firstborn son, who not only outstrips him as a songwriter before he's out of his teens, he seemingly does it effortlessly, his gifts so enormous that they can't be constrained. And he becomes, in short order, the songwriter every other songwriter in America worships. Murray's kid. It was complicated. Because Murray, the father, who was sort of the primary abuser, was also passionately in love with his kids and, and ultimately sacrificed was, you know, a lot to help them live out that dream that was also his dream, which was musical stardom, you know, I mean, to, to, you know, to become a, a music star and to write hit songs and make a ton of money and become famous and all that stuff. I mean, it's the American dream, right? That's a lot of freight for any father-son relationship to carry, let alone one where the father had a temper and liked to drink. The frustration Murray felt was an acid. It was corrosive. And the very real love he felt for his boys was a blunt instrument. There's a famous audio clip. It's been around for years. It used to be an underground thing, like the clip of Buddy Rich screaming at his musicians on the band bus, or the one of Orson Welles recording a TV commercial. It used to get handed around person to person on cassette tape. Now, because nothing's underground anymore, you can find it on YouTube. Brian's recording the vocals, or trying to record the vocals for uh, what would be the hit single version of Help Me Rhonda. And, uh, but then suddenly Murray shows up with their mother, and Murray is drunk and angry. And so they're recording this whole session, and Brian is running the session, as always, but then Murray can't stop punching in and trying to run the session. Help me run the back swim capade. Brian, your voice is shrilling through everybody. Carl, we can't hear Carl. We can hear Dennis, but we can't hear Mike. We can't hear Mike, and we can hardly hear hear Al. Okay, now wait a second. Me? Can we hear a chord? Just a chord like we used to. When you used to sing clear records, okay? Let's go. Brian, I'm a genius too. Let's go, huh? One, two, three. She was gonna be my wife and I was gonna be her man. But the room. That was the safe place. Peter Carlin has a theory, it's in his book, that Brian took that feeling of safety he had from being in his room and he brought it to his music. Music became his room. And as his talents bloomed and his ambitions got grander and grander, He built bigger and bigger rooms to feel safe in. Good vibrations. Pet sounds. Smile. It's a good theory. But for now, let's leave the boys in their room. The actual room. Things were quiet. You know, they could shut the door. Things would quiet down in the house. And so, you know, they would sing songs. You know, I don't think that, I don't know that they sang in my room, you know. But that was the type of harmonizing, the way when you listen to the song, the way their voices are layered one upon another. Um, and, you, and it describes that feeling of being in there, you know, and this peacefulness and letting your mind wander and, and knowing that you're safe for that moment. 
So things started to move for Harry Jarnigan. He connected with a staff historian in Sacramento, mapped out the application process, gathered letters of support from Dick Clark from Rolling Stone and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and from some unlikelier sources, like state librarian Kevin Starr, whose multi-volume History of California is the definitive work of scholarship on the state. In the fall of 2003, the AP picked up the story from the Daily Breeze, a local paper in the South Bay, and now there was national interest. And so you, you dare not fail. <laughs> he didn't. One day in early 2004, he walked the 86-page landmark application into the Office of Historic Preservation in Sacramento. And I got a receipt. And I said, okay, I want a receipt that you've received this thing because I want nothing going wrong. They gave me a receipt, and, and uh, that was on February 6th of 2004. It seemed so obvious to Jarnigan that the Beach Boys were worthy of official recognition from the state, from this state. It seemed like such a no-brainer. As the landmark uh, plaque says, the Beach Boys depicted California as a place of uh, surf, sun, and romance, and that had an effect on that generation. There they are again. The easy bromides that float on the surface of the Beach Boys story. But you never have to dive very deep to feel the riptides. You know, I called the book um, Catch a Wave because uh, it's one of those great early kind of evangelical surfing songs, you know, catch a wave and you're sitting on top of the world type stuff, you know. But the first three words in the first verse are, don't be afraid, which introduce this idea of instantly, of that there's something to be afraid of, that there's something that you would see that would make you want to turn around and run. And they're saying, no, don't run away. And then they go on into the next verses to explain exactly what the stakes are. That, you know, don't be afraid, you know, to, to try the greatest surf, the greatest sport around. Those who don't just have to put it down. Okay, so already you've got these, like, antagonists. Like, there are these dudes on the beach who are, who are rooting for your destruction. And then it's like, so, you know, go out and catch a wave like a surfer boy, but, but don't treat it like a toy. Okay, so you got these badasses on the beach. Now you got these waves that you're beginning to understand are not only your vehicles toward transcendence, but could also kill you because it's dangerous to surf. So you're setting the stakes of this thing. It's like you can go out and become whoever you want to be, but you could get hassled, beat up, or killed. And that's just the stakes of the game. The Beach Boys Historic Landmark, that's the official designation from the state, it's landmark number 1041, was dedicated on a warm May day in 2005. Brian was there, and Al Jardine. Brian sang In My Room with the guys from his new touring band. Peter Carlin was there, and he says they sounded great. But it wasn't the same. It couldn't be. Dennis and Carl were dead. And Mike Love, who manages to end up the cartoon villain in most stories you hear about the band, he never even responded to his invitation. But he did tell a New York radio audience a few days before that he was glad the house had been bulldozed into smithereens. His only regret was that somebody hadn't done it years before. And then it was over, and the crowd went home. And just past the berm where the house used to sit, the traffic streamed on toward the ocean. And away from it, too, although that's not quite as poetic. And that should have been the end of it. Except for one thing. 
part of what I do in my career is in, in just large-scale construction is you're constantly agonizing about money and funding, and so I didn't take that lightly. I knew this would be an expensive project because as time was going on, its scale uh, and scope, not only physically but also in terms of the attention it was getting, was growing as time went on. So I knew it would cost money to erect a monument. I knew it would cost money to have a, a dedication. And people were getting very generous in their, in their donation of funds and their donation of goods and services. But I knew it might not be enough. And so what I did was I took out a um, home equity line of credit, which back in those days before the recession was pretty easy to get. And I got a stack of checks, and I just started writing checks as, as time went on. Jarnigan ended up personally loaning the campaign $42,000. He made an agreement with the city of Hawthorne that he'd be allowed to continue fundraising after the dedication to retire that personal indebtedness. They'd done all sorts of things to fundraise during the campaign, including selling commemorative bricks to be added to the monument. And we were making progress. And in July of 2007, I had a balance of about $14,000 still outstanding. And I got an email from uh, an administrator with Brothers Records. Brother Records is the Beach Boys company. Where she uh, requested that I basically cease and desist uh, further fundraising, uh, cease and desist use of a, land, of a landmark website that we had put up to do the fundraising. And so uh, I, I stopped work, but I did get legal advice. I, I contacted three different attorneys. And uh, they said to me, yeah, you have, they said, yeah, it's a cool project, Harry. And yeah, you did great stuff and, and uh, it's all a very neat thing to do. But technically and legally speaking, you did infringe on the trademark of the Beach Boys. And so if you've got an email from them that says to stop, our advice to you is to stop. And so I did. I, I brought down the uh, website, Stop Fundraising, and I was out 14000 And I never got that recovered. So I'm talking to Harry Jarnigan. And at this point, I don't even want to ask him what I really want to know, which is, was the house even the right place to memorialize? I mean, why not the Capitol Records Tower or Santa Monica Pier or Huntington Beach, the original Surf City? I know, I know Jan and Dean, but still, all of these are still standing. They're still in business. Wouldn't any of them make a more historically vivid monument? But I do ask him, and he has an answer, because the state asked him more or less the same question during the application process. And so what I did was I went back to my, the old books that I read and I kind of went through them quickly and I just set up an Excel spreadsheet and I cataloged out all, all the places mentioned that had any significance. And so besides the old address, these are things like other addresses. These are things like uh, old recording studios, et cetera, et cetera. I came up with about 25 or 26 separate sites and I said, here's the site, here's the location, here's what was significant. I laid all that out and I put a cover letter to it. And I said that all these sites are significant, but I think one would have to agree that, that the place where the kids started out as raw musicians and where they got their, you know, had their, they basically cut their tape in Labor Day of 1961, they cut their tape of what would become their first hit. And I said, I think that, that is the seminal uh, uh, location for the Beach Boys. Jarnigan's a good guy. He's righteous in his cause. And he's a lot more affable about being 14 grand in the hole than I'd be. It's just the cost of doing business, he says. So I hesitate to say that I'm still not sure I buy his answer. 
It's like he's saying, well, the place is significant because it just is. Then I remember something Peter Carlin told me about Brian Wilson. He uses the words love and fear interchangeably. So it's like if there's a song he really loves. He's like, oh man, that song is scary. This is so scary. It's like, I remember, and, and I was intrigued by that. And I remember asking, we were talking about the, the time, um, it was right around the time when he sort of brushed off Smile, the great lost psychedelic classic album that became sort of like, in some ways, the keystone of the Brian Wilson legacy and the folklore, the folktale of Brian Wilson in America, which is a very important story. But it was even more important when the album didn't exist. And this went on for decades. I asked him what it felt like to, after 40 years of legend, go up on stage in London and debut the finished smile. And he said, well, you know, it was, it was so... And, and then he talked about the 10-minute standing ovation he got in the end. And I was like, what was that like? And he goes, oh, it was so scary. And I go, well, what do you mean scary? It's like, scary? Like it was terrible? He goes, no, it was good scary. And so it's like, that's how the guy's mind works. Love and Fear. They're the pole stars of the Beach Boys' music. Their best music, anyway. The most adventurous and complex and glorious of it. Because they were the two extremes of the boys' lives in that little 1940s house. It was the place where, more likely than any other, somebody would end up on the wrong end of an ass-kicking because they'd sung sharp, or come in late, or just looked at Murray wrong. And all of that bottled-up resentment came boiling up out of him, the pride and the failure and the anger all swirled around together. But it was also the place, at least in those all-important early years, where the boys could take refuge in the sound of their own voices, piling one on the other just so, exactly right, in a way only Brian could hear, deep in his own head. Imagine that. Imagine hearing something as transcendent as those harmonies in your head, and then actually being able to make them real in that little bedroom, in that little house where all of it was right there in the air. Dread and exaltation. Fear and love. Harry Jarnigan got it exactly right. The house on 119th Street was the place. The only one that matters. He still drops by when he's in town, sweeps the sidewalk, picks up litter. A couple of times in the immediate aftermath of the dedication, when he was still diligently fundraising to get out of that $42,000 hole, he even sold a couple of bricks to people he met by chance at the site. Mike Love bought one, too, for $500. <laughs> 